0: Imagine you just found $6,000 or even $600. Whatever the equivalent of these things are in your country, wherever you're listening to this, imagine you stumbled across that. What would you do with it right now? How would you put it to use? Do you have to pay off loans? Do you want to go travel? Going towards a honeymoon, new computer, new piece of equipment? $6,000. The reason I'm asking you to consider this is that's exactly the amount of money I am going to be giving away Over the next few weeks, for those of you that sign up for my newsletter and leave a rating for the podcast. Now, the newsletter link is below in the show notes, no matter where you're listening to this, Spotify, iTunes, anything like that. It's artofcoaching.com backslash start. Again, artofcoaching.com backslash start. And by leaving a review for the podcast, by signing up for the newsletter, you are automatically gonna be entered into a randomized drawing where we're giving away over 10 online courses, all of which are $500 in value. So that's either bought in or valued. You'll be entered to uh, win either of those. I'm going to be giving away Momentous product. I'm going to be giving away Art of Coaching shirts, Conscious Coaching shirts. Uh, We're going to be giving away a variety of different things to the tune of over $6,000. There's no joke. There's nothing about that. The other thing, guys, is this. My newsletter is the one area that I share stuff that I never share on my courses, on my podcasts, anything like that. And that's not because I'm trying to hold something back. It's just the reality is it's the nature of the medium. A newsletter is for those of you that you know want to get to know me better, want to engage in more discussion, all those kinds of things. And to be honest, it's where we give our discounted tickets for live events, our future courses. Everything is announced first on the newsletter. So I appreciate all of you that listen to the podcast. I appreciate all of you that are involved with other things, but if you're not on the newsletter, you're missing out. I'm gonna put my favorite apps, reading lists, all that kind of stuff. So again, check it out. What do you have to lose? Literally all you have to do is sign up for the newsletter, leave your honest review of the podcast. We're not asking you to make something up and you're entered for that drawing. More than $6,000 worth of stuff, guys, right? So that's a lot. This isn't something we're only giving it away to like one person. I am going to announce the winners on the podcast September 22nd. Now, if you follow me on social media, initially we were going to do this on September 9th, but we got a a great response and we wanted to open up to the podcast audience. So don't worry. If you already entered previously uh, through the prompts on my social media, you're still locked in. You're good to go. For everybody else, artofcoaching.com backslash start. $6,000 plus of free giveaways. Make sure you sign up. Please support the podcast. I'm trying to give you guys my best in as many different ways as possible and as many different mediums as possible. And that newsletter is always gonna keep you up to date first. All right, with that aside, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. It was a lot of fun. And make sure, again, that you're taking notes, that you're applying this information. Don't get caught doing what so many other people do when they listen to podcasts. It's just, it's mindless. It's one podcast to the next. Listen to it, apply it. Make sure you email us. Let us know how you're using the information. I appreciate you and on with the show. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me. And now let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Art of Coaching podcast. I am here with Mike Golick, Jr. Mike is a host for ESPN, a regular contributor on Golick and Wingo, uh, a former college football player, academic All-American at Notre Dame, and now a master of oration and all things pop culture. And that'll definitely come through on, on the conversation today. Uh, Mike also had stints uh, with the Steelers, the Saints, and the Alouettes. We met, uh, man, it probably would have been around 2012, 2013 when I had the opportunity to coach uh, Mike and his brother Jake. Mike, it's an honor to have you on the show, man. Anything I missed there?
1: No, man. You, you nailed it. Thorough as always. I appreciate the uh, the master of pop culture nod there. I think I'm still working diligently in that dojo to get to some of my peers. But uh, as I say at the award shows, it's an honor just to be nominated.
0: <laughs> there you go, man. A nice alliteration there, diligently in the dojo. Mike, one of the things that's always drawn me to you from the first moment That we met. I remember I was just going down. We were doing some soft tissue stuff before we were training, and I introduced myself. And you have like a command and a boom to your voice and just a way of projecting personality and competence and engagement, unlike any I've ever seen. And now that's obviously shining through with what you're doing with ESPN, uh, all the coverage there and and everything you're starting to do as you segue into more of the college football space. I mean, you're kind of like everywhere on ESPN now, but like where did that come from? What did your ability? to just communicate and speak at such a high level come from
1: uh, I think some of it was certainly natural I mean obviously my my father and the the line of work he's been in and doing this in radio for the better part of two decades now uh, I think I can attribute some of that to good genes he was the same way very personable as a player but him and my mom too just kind of the way that me and my siblings Uh, I'm the oldest of three. We're all raised. It was a lot of those basics that go into creating the structure for that, right? When you meet people, you look them in the eyes, you introduce yourself, you say, yes, sir. You say, no, ma'am. You shake their hands firmly. You make it's all of those basics that I feel like if that's the framework for how you're going to communicate, then the rest just gets filled in with personality. And I was fortunate to grow up in an environment around a dad who was on sports talk radio every day where, being yourself and having a big personality was something cool, it was something that was rewarded. And so it, it made it a lot easier to fill in with that framework then.
0: Yeah. And it's definitely rare. I mean, like you think about, I understand that your involvement with team sports, especially at the super high level that you and your father and your uncle played at, you know, there's a team dynamic there where you have to communicate with everybody around you. But what role has that even played as you've now started to get into broadcasting more? I mean, you have such a limited amount of time to keep the attention of the viewer, get your point across. Has that provided any challenges or does that still come pretty natural to you?
1: Uh, No, that's definitely provided challenges because uh, I think, and and you could certainly speak to this, you know, whatever whatever you're doing a lot of the same skills can apply, and whether that's, you know, in in the case of training sometimes, sport to sport and the different skill sets and base things that can apply, but there's always going to be things specific and germane to everything and so, yeah, for a long time I, I got used to working and communicating in sports and what I needed to do to communicate best with teammates and coaches to get things done, and it's different on this side, you know, the way I have to communicate with producers, navigating the bureaucracy of, of, you know, uh, the the corporate brass side of ESPN. But then getting on the show like, all right, I, I have to, you know, even as personable as I am, I have to structure things differently if I want to hold someone's attention. When I build out an argument for something, I've got to lead with my strongest stuff. I've got to kind of try and craft a hook so that someone's going to want to stick around. And so it kind of required me to and I always said this, this is the difficult part of transitioning from sports to this is I had to kind of learn how to work hard all over again, because I know how to do something over and over again when I've been shown the right way and pointed in the right direction, but this is just a completely new arena. And so I had to kind of relearn or learn for the first time, I guess all of those new ways, to work hard in a different space, even though it's using a lot of the same tools.
0: No, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of the big reasons I started Art of Coaching is I don't think any of us really learn how to navigate uh, complexities of social skills. I mean, you talked about it a moment ago, we may learn the please and the thank you and the basic kind of uh, uh, details of fundamentals of, of polite communication, but in terms of navigating egos, insecurities, or, or even just like, uh, these micro political things that you deal with in the workspace, there's no social skills training on that. And that was one thing I wanted to kind of ask you next is when you started working at ESPN, cause I get asked sometimes by people, they're like, Hey, when you speak to, is there a school you went to, or did you take a class? Like, did you have any kind of training? Like, do you guys have that at ESPN? Do they have some kind of, uh, almost semi-formal education that as you come in, that they help you? kind of find your voice and and learn different tricks of the trade when you're on the air.
1: Um yes and no so they do some things to help you out, you know, they had an inner like an interview seminar cuz that's a big part of the job that I think is the most unnatural, right? A lot of what we do is just talking to one another, but when it's an interview process, when it's something a little bit more formal, they did a lot to kind of help you and and, and those things certainly apply to conversation as well and have helped me so There was some training involved, but a lot of it, and you hear this over and over again when I first got into this from anyone who I asked for advice is you just got to get the reps. It's like, you know, it's a 10,000 hour rule. It's everything else where I can sit around and be told, all right, this is how to do something. And I can sit around and ask my dad and as many other veterans in this process as I can for advice and for guidance and for how they felt like they got the best out of themselves. But at the end of the day, I still have to go out there and kind of learn by making mistakes. And so for me, I got to host a radio show from 4 to 6 in the morning Eastern time when hardly anyone was listening. And so I was allowed to, thankfully, and and I am certainly appreciative of this, I was allowed to kind of make mistakes and try things out and figure out, all right, what is my voice? What am I comfortable saying? What are the things I want to get across? And uh, you know, I I think really just this past year is the first time I started to feel like I had any real handle on that and I've been at ESPN for almost five years now it'll be starting five years this fall so it's definitely been a process yeah
0: and I think you bring you mentioned something specific there about having almost kind of this safe place to fail and get the reps right when you did that early morning show that's something that I found that you know coaches don't when when we talk about communication most coaches kind of take that for granted because they feel like oh I communicate every day I'm getting the reps and I'm like yeah I mean that's coaching though. I mean, there's other elements of communication that you've got to deal with, right? Because it's not always explaining something to somebody. There's a lot of negotiation involved with coaching. There's conflict resolution. There's all these other things. And so, um, you know, did, did you ever just feel like, wow, like, uh, it's amazing that I feel like I've communicated my whole life, but now I've got to really focus on things like my cadence, clarity, control, and all those things on, on such a higher level, or d- does that just kind of come secondary to you? I mean, when you listen to yourself, I mean, I mean, what what thoughts came to your mind when you hear yourself on the air for the first time?
1: Yeah, I think it is a lot of that. It's a realization of how much goes into something that I came into this going, all right, I do this. I communicate and I talk pretty well. I'm pretty funny. I do all this so well naturally. And it definitely helped coming in. But it's like anything else. When I sit around and go, all right, well, I don't just want to be good at this. I want to be the best at this. And you start to hone in and you start to have people whose ears you trust, taking you through it and helping you hear these things. And whether it's, you know, a a verbal crutch that you're falling on, whether it's something that you're using to buy time in a spot where you don't need to, you learn all these things about the way you communicate. And it's funny because now I feel like on the other side, because of the work that I've been putting in at ESPN and the way that I feel like I've started to grow in this, it's actually made me a better communicator going back to real life. You know, I, I focus more on being a better listener because that tends to be the one thing and probably the best bit of advice I got when I started doing this was really listen to people when you're on air with them, when you're talking to them, if you're interviewing them, because that's where all the best stuff comes from. And so it taking advice like that, taking principles like that that again would seem like second nature and, and day one stuff, but you never really think about as much when you're just going through your day to day, all of a sudden, I'm focusing on it like a craft. And I I think it's made me a better communicator in the real world outside of work, away from the microphone. Yeah.
0: I'm glad you mentioned listening. That was one area where I started uh, growing a little bit more, just doing podcasts, being a guest on other people is because I noticed sometimes on other people's shows, it was almost as if they weren't listening to have a discussion. They were listening just to ask their next question. And so, you know, I'd listen back to it and I, I always cringe when I hear myself on audio, but I noticed I'd, I'd look at my wife and I'd be like, does this interview like, like, does it seem choppy? And she's like, well, it just seems like they have kind of these pre-scripted questions and they're not really listening. And that's the funny thing, right? Like communication at the end of the day is about the, the listener. Like that's the foundation of everything. So you can't really have any kind of discussion if you're not really keying in on, on what somebody else is saying. And that is, I mean, you have to take that approach when you're playing off the other host of the show, right? Like, uh, is that like, what other tips do you kind of keep in the back of your mind when you start to feel like your mind's wandering just to stay focused on the message?
1: Yeah, I think just staying engaged is something that just, I I don't know nothing other than focusing and reminding myself that a for, for this purpose, it's a job and it's something, all right, I'm here for four hours a day. This is what I'm paid to do. I owe the people employing me and everyone else who's a part of this show. I owe them my attention and my focus. And, and listen I'm like everyone else I fail at that pretty much every day in one way shape or form but it, it, you just try and be mindful of it and be cognizant of it and if you catch yourself doing it just sort of pull yourself back to center and remind yourself all right we're, we're here to do this job I'm here to listen to this person and try and get the most out of this that I can it, 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 it's like you said and I think it's an, an interesting word I hadn't thought about before really treating it all like a negotiation you know you you're You're each bartering something every time you come up to the plate. And the only way that you can be fair to both that side and to yourself in that is to be aware of what everyone's bringing to the table and how that changes throughout the flow of the conversation. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think where that changed for me is when I transitioned from the collegiate space where, you know, when you tell an athlete to do something by and large, they kind of have to do it. Otherwise their head coach is going to get involved, yada, yada, yada. But when you start, when I first started working with professional athletes or even in the private sector where now people are paying and it's a service-based industry, it's a fine line. Like as a coach, you still have to tell them what to do, you know, in terms of their best interests. But these are also, you know, grown men and women that, you know, can make millions of dollars a year. And at the end of the day, like you, you can't just have that power dynamic over them where it's this legitimating authoritarian like hey do this or else so that's when I figured I you know I learned that I really had to use that term like negotiation it's a little bit more of a dance and you've got to make sure that people don't just complete a task but they also feel good about what they're doing because there's a difference between commitment and compliance and the effort you're going to get like as a former athlete does that resonate with you or am I way off on that?
1: No, I I think that does. And I think that that was one thing I always appreciated about when we had the chance to work together was the idea that it wasn't just being dictated to, it was trying to communicate for the means of understanding. And once you're empowered in that way, once you feel like, all right, someone's not just telling me something to do. And this is something that we see all the time. And what you touched on is so true now from this macro level, from looking at sports from sort of that 30,000 foot view is you see on the collegiate level and some of it is by, you know, uh, by necessity based on just the age and the dynamic. And some of it is just what's so built into the fabric of it is it is more dictation and you're just told this is where you're supposed to be and when, and then you move up that level. And all of a sudden it's, all right, well we have to do this together now. Like we've all done this long enough and there's a respect for each other's expertise that we can learn through this together. It's a negotiation, but both sides can benefit if they're willing to listen and that takes a lot of swallowing pride and that takes a lot of you know not having too much uh, too much i i guess the hubris or arrogance to think that i've got everything figured out and i think that's why when you get to that point and when you get to that spot everyone benefits way more than when it's just a one-way street
0: right yeah and, and speaking of pride attention arrogance hubris you have witnessed and been around a lot of different personalities in the world of sports. How do you think the attitude of athletes and coaches today? has evolved over the years, in part because of the expansion of TV being in their face, social media, podcasts. Are you in the camp that really thinks like, hey, this probably hasn't changed things that much. We're probably just seeing it on a deeper level. Or do you think that because, you know, there's like almost this eye in the sky everywhere that it's almost exacerbated and amplified some of these strong personalities uh, that were already out there?
1: Yeah, I think it's probably closer to the latter for that. I think we're just getting more of a window into what's always been there because I don't think it's changed a ton in our personally now. It's interesting. I talked to a lot of guys that have been veterans in the NFL that came in during a time that was probably closer to when my dad played and then were able to enjoy long careers that brought them into when guys closer to my age were coming into the league. And they do talk about some of the things that are different about guys because of the digital age because of all the attention paid to them and the way that it's changed attitudes in some regard. But I still think at the end of the day, the best part about sports is regardless of all of that, there's still a level of honesty that exists within inside the locker room. And that to me is why it's such a special place is because the feedback is so immediate and it's usually so honest because we don't have time or the ability to really do anything otherwise. We're all trying to work towards this goal and, One of the byproducts of this game is the level of accountability demanded is so high because I hold the physical well-being of a lot of other guys in my hands with what I do in every play. But what I think has really changed is from the outside looking in now, it's definitely made guys more guarded. I mean, hell, it even does that to me in media. There's so many eyes on us now and what you do when you're in the public light at all, and this especially holds true for athletes, that it makes you a little bit more guarded about who you are in public and it makes you a little bit more careful about what's going on because there are a lot of people and I tell kids this all the time when I get the chance to talk to them there are a lot of people and some of them in the media included who are looking for you to fail because it makes a headline for them and that's a scary thought
0: yeah oh without question and I can only imagine the level you deal with I mean I like I have a a meager I think at the time of this recording like 80,000 Instagram followers and I will get people that will send threats in my DMs. If I don't like send them a free book or something like that, I have people that will just go on and whether it's the podcast or YouTube, they'll just rip something, you know, and it's like, so I can only imagine, I mean, I don't think really people take that into account when they think of athletes and people like yourself or have such a, a much bigger profile on not only a national, but international stage. And so it's funny when people kind of criticize or condemn and say, oh, look at how they're behaving. Look at how they're doing this. It's like, no, you're only seeing a snapshot of that, right? Like, and and a perfect example is this. I'd put up a video of some guys uh, training with me prior to NFL training camp. Now, it was a 90-minute session. We did a lot during that time period, but the video is about 20 minutes. And inevitably, somebody's like, oh, you know, we didn't see this. We didn't see that. I go, bro, it's a 20-minute snapshot. You know what I mean? If you want to see all those things, come and watch. And I, I just think that's an important element for most people to consider is uh you know when you hear about how somebody reacts or approaches media you've got to consider like wh- what they're dealing with and the things that go on behind the scenes I mean th- how did you deal with that because we hear a lot about and w- whatever people think of the term right like whether it's cyberbullying or trolls or whatever like how do you deal with that is it something you just kind of like eh, whatever I brush it off because you know you have so much coming at you all the time or was there a time where that shit got to you and you're just kind of like whoa how do I uh, how do I deal with this at the level I'm at now?
1: Yeah, I think it changes by the day. You know, you have you have good days and bad. You have days where you're a little more focused on it, maybe have a little bit too much free time, and all of a sudden you wander into your mentions and you see the one thing that kind of hits a nerve because, hell, most things that really bother us have enough of a kernel of truth, whether it's a, an actual truth, whether it's an insecurity it preys on. And so, it, thankfully, again, just by sheer volume of dealing with that constant feedback every day and that's the good and bad of social media for us is you do kind of get used to that and you get, you know, some of the thick skin that quite frankly develops in athletics because you're getting a lot of the same stuff. You know, I had buddies of mine, when we were college athletes who were getting death threats for things that happened in game, you had to get, you know, campus security involved in certain instances. And so it definitely builds up over time, but there's good days and bad days. And so it certainly, but you're right. That's the danger that comes with, it just being a sliver of your life is people get that sliver, but it's the only access that they have. And so they take that access, they take that thing and they try and extrapolate it. And a lot of times mistakenly. So
0: yeah, you definitely got to be careful what you share. I mean, just the other day, as we're recording this, it was my wife's birthday two days ago. And I had somebody reach out and be like, yo, it's your wife's birthday, right? Like, why didn't you post something on social media? I'm like, bro, Everybody does not need to know everything about my life. Like my personal life, you know, is, is pretty private. I might show elements of it, but my wife's right down the hall. I can go say happy birthday to her without the world knowing, you know, like we, we live in this time now where everybody feels like you have to share everything. How do you determine like what thoughts or what events like you, you actually feel you should weigh in on and which ones you should probably be like, mm, let me sit back and watch this play out a little bit. Do you have kind of a heuristic that you follow there or do you just kind of jump in?
1: Uh, you know what? More often than not, and I have a very close friend of mine who I won't name, who also works in sports media, who has often, because you know, we'll, we'll bounce it off each other. A lot of times there's strength in numbers, and if it's a situation where I'm not sure or they're not sure, we'll just shoot a text to the other one and say, hey, should I do this? And usually the response and the best way that I've heard it framed to kind of use as a heuristic or not is, do I feel like giving the rest of my morning to this? Like, is it important enough to me, this conversation, this argument, however big or small it is, is it something that matters enough to me to potentially give the rest of my morning to if I go down this rabbit hole? Because we see like a, social media can be like texting while driving. You'll look down and think you're sending quick text, and you'll look up and wonder where the last quarter mile of road has gone. And yeah. to me, there's something kind of terrifying about that. And so I, I think the more I fall back on that, the more often I'll look at a situation and realize, you know what? It's just not worth it.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent heuristic. I'm going to repeat that for anybody listening. He said, do I feel like giving the rest of my morning on this? And I think that was something that almost kind of made me back off Twitter. Um, you know, in the in the performance field, Twitter is just this like uh, um, minefield where, you know, everybody wants to know your thought. A coach just always want to debate, like, what do you think of this guy's technique and speed? And did you see this on the media? And did you see that? And I would somebody reach out one time and they're like, hey, I haven't heard you in on this. I'm like, honestly, man, I don't feel like I need to like at the end of the day, like my opinion's not going to convert all the unconverted or, or do this. And, you know, you you do have to start thinking like that. You do have to say like, what do I feel strongly enough about that? I do want to have to like, I I know I feel compelled to have to check in on later in the day. And, you know, if if somebody wants to get an argument about, you know, which exercise is best, this, that, and whatever, there's conferences they can go debate that on. Like, I'm not going to do, I'm not spending my, my day on Twitter getting into that. So I've, love that heuristic. I think that's super useful. Um, Is there anything else you want to touch on that before we jump to the next thing? Because that was a a really good point.
1: No, but I I think what you just said there kind of hits the nail on the head. Like When you get to spaces, and and this is something, I forget what book I read it in, and I wish I could give it the credit it deserves, but um, I think it was a book called Thinking in Bet, and this idea of every situation, every social interaction you get into, ends up being a social contract for that situation. And if both parties on both sides haven't agreed to the terms of that contract, then you get in the area where it gets messy, where one side gets offended or one side feels attacked or one side's not exactly sure the way that we're exchanging information, the level of honesty that we're using. And so Twitter is one of those situations where I don't know the person on the other side of that in most situations well enough to have agreed to any sort of contract. And so you end up getting people that are just dug into trenches and nothing really helps. Whereas when you get into somewhere personally, when it is an interview setting, when it is a conference, like you brought up, we all come there under the agreement that we're here to get better, that we have come here for the search of information or the exchange of information. And then it's a lot easier when everyone kind of understands the rules, we get into trouble when we get into places where the rules aren't clearly defined in whatever the interaction going to be.
0: Yeah, no. And you brought that. That's a great book, Annie. And talk about somebody that had to deal with a lot of criticism, and I don't know her, but Annie Dukes, who wrote that book. I remember when I was trying to do some research on her when a friend recommended that. Oh, my goodness. You start realizing how dark of a place the internet is. I mean, there's people that called for her head. And uh, speaking of calling for heads, it's funny. I almost feel like whoever's manning social media at ESPN, they know the strength and conditioning world too well because all you have to do to get basically everybody in this field to react is post a, a training clip from some athlete's Instagram and you will just be littered with comments of that's not a real squat, that's a half rep. I mean, coaches just go nuts and then the next minute it's all over social media and they say this is the problem with this crap. You know, the media picks this up and like I don't think people really realize this, Mike, and maybe I'm wrong, so check me because you have way more experience in, in that. I am. Like I think people don't understand that a lot of times what's shared by large outlets in part is to get a reaction. And so, so these people, they get on and they criticize maybe something somebody posts and they don't really realize like, oh, well, you're actually helping the spread of that information. And that knee jerk reaction is exactly what they were looking for there. I mean, is there a truth to that? I mean, where do you see that take place?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, you hear it all the time and it's sort of a big overarching word, but there's a lot of math involved in this. Like, you, you hear the algorithm thrown around all the time, but It's true when something pings like that and gets a lot of interactions and all these measurables that social media sites give you, the things that get the most traffic get shared. You see kind of the same aggregators and big social accounts for various networks or leagues or outlets. They all operate kind of under that same system. Like they're there to get the most user engagement possible. And so if they see a video that's firing around the internet and getting a ton of runs, you best believe they're not going to miss out on the party there. And that kind of is true for everyone if you look around long enough yeah, I, I absolutely think there's a lot of truth to that. Like we all feed into the machine when we give it our time and attention.
0: And then there's this, uh, there's a really great book called crystallizing public opinion where, you know, the author basically he's, he's the father of basically, uh, uh, PR right. Public relations. And he talks about a debate is always going to draw a bigger crowd than anything else. And so, you know, we kind of feed into this culture of, uh, monomania whenever you share something and then also you share something that makes people angry. Now, like this is an interesting piece too, because going, along with that coaches. And I feel like, you know, I use the word coaches, but this is relatable to anything. It's kind of like, this is a constant thing I have to put out there almost as a reminder. Like, even though I use the term coach and athlete, sometimes it's, that's because I'm a coach and I work with athletes, but this is kind of the, the fun of uh, the fundamental construct of human beings. I feel like they always belabor millennials, right. Or social media or something else. Like, uh, like at what point if somebody's blaming all these reasons, they can't connect or they can't do something other, like at what point is it just an inability of that person, the leader, the manager, the coach or whatever, uh, an inability for them to adapt, you know, at what point is it their fault where it's like, all right, like at some point, maybe the issue is me, it's not millennials. Cause there's always a generation or at some point there's something else. Like, what do you think on that piece?
1: Yeah, I, I think blame works on a scale where it's never zero or a 100, right? Like I think if you're in a situation right there and there's a problem, chances are everyone's contributed in some way, shape, or form. However you want to weight that based on the situation, and I, I, I think using leadership as one of the ways to weight it is interesting because in most situations that person who has risen to a position of power or a position of influence enough to be deemed the leader in the group group like you tend to shoulder more of that, because in theory, you are someone who has honed their communication skills a little bit more, or has become enough of an expert in a field to kind of be the authority figure. And so, yeah, I think in those situations, we understandably put more of the, you know, I I almost put blame in quotes, because again, it's not something to me that should be that binary. But uh, I, I do think there is part of it where, and this seems to be the tendency I always say I'm kind of waiting for the next group that comes up I think it's Gen Zers now would be the ones that are technically under me since I fall into that millennial pack like I'm waiting for the first thing that they do as a collective (laughs) that I go oh man I can't stand you guys for that because that's when I'll know I've really arrived because we all kind of just tend to go through that cycle and we see it play out through history but uh yeah I think communication solves a lot of that like I I I deal with people every day that are older than me and the ones that communicate really well, It it doesn't matter. It kind of erases the gap in a lot of it.
0: Yeah, and and that's always an interesting piece too. Is like you communicate every day, and I had to remind somebody one time. They were like, Ah, listen, I'd love to have you on the podcast. Um, They're like, But you just kind of talk about uh, coaching, right? And I'm like, Well, no, talk about communication. I'm like, That pretty much relates to everybody. And he's like, Oh, I guess I never really thought of that. But you're right. In terms of the next generation, it's almost like a Saturday Night Live skit. And Mike, like, you if they had like four people, and they're like, All right, this person's Gen X, this person's a Millennial. This person is, did you say you think it's Gen Z? Is that what you said? I think that's the next one. Yeah. So, I mean, if you had to make up something that everybody's going to bitch about for Gen Z right now, what's it going to be? The way they eat their tacos? What's it going to be? What do you think Gen Z is going to be?
1: Yeah. You know what? I think it's going to be the way that they're always on their, like, instead of their iPhone or anything like that, it's going to be the monocle that's implanted into their eyes. Now they're never making eye contact with me. They're always texting their friends with telepathy or whatever. Sort of strange technology they've developed in that yeah it's kind of like jacks from mortal Kombat. i think the kids are always going to be
0: playing with their bionic arms instead of paying attention and that's just going to start a rampage and people are going to get you know they're going to get really angry because now we it's not that we just don't know how to communicate now everybody's just breaking things with their bionic arms Hey, everybody, we're going to get right back into this episode. I don't want you to miss any of this, but I did want to remind you that as part of the Art of Coaching audience, if you use the code BRETT20, again, that's my first name, brett 20 BRETT20, at checkout at livemomentous.com, anything they have there, you are going to get $20 off your first order. If you're not familiar with Momentous, just a reminder, Momentus is the premier sponsor of the Art of Coaching podcast. In short, they're the reason I'm able to bring this information to you guys for free. They uh, they help me cover the cost of the podcast and all the other content that I, I'm able to get to you guys. So, you know, their support is huge. Now, if you're not familiar with the products, they have a wide range, everything from their absolute zero grass-fed whey. And again, guys, this is all whey isolate, the purest form of whey, uh, Arc Fire grass-fed whey. Not only that, they have a 100% plant protein for those of you that can't do whey. They have strength recovery. Recovery, and they're always coming out with new and unique products. Now, one of the reasons I partnered with Momentus is I am a minimalist when it comes to any of this stuff. I'm a big believer that consistency in your training sleep, hydration, and just good nutrition are the most powerful supplements. Uh, But there are certain staples that we can't get around and we have to be able to source in the most responsible way possible and that we also have to just be able to add in through supplementary form, whether that's because we're at busy lifestyles, because we have digestion issues, any number of factors. And so, you know, protein and fish oil is really the only thing that I take. Every now and then I might experiment with some other stuff that's all natural, but I'm not really, I'm from the Midwest so there's a running joke that we kind of grew up on, on steak and milk, but Momentus is absolutely something I am behind hundred percent. And again, if you just use the code Brett 20 at anything on live or you can check out the art of coaching Momentus link on the show notes, you're going to be hooked up. Thanks again for your support. And now back to the episode.
1: That's, that's really it. And you know what it is? It's like, I, I say all that cause I'm trying to concoct something that I won't fully <laughs> be able to comprehend. And, but, but like, I think that's the core of it. Right. Is none, none of us like feeling dumb. Like none of us like feeling like we're not in control or we don't understand the situation. And you see, there's a ton. And I'm guilty of it. When I get in a situation where all of a sudden I feel like the other person I'm dealing with or the group I'm dealing with knows more than me, there's some feeling of like guilt or apprehension, like, oh man, but you, you hear all these successful people always talk and they say, I- I'd rather be the dumbest one in the room because that means I'm in the right room. I'm in the position to learn something. But in a lot of cases, that's an It's an easy thing to like say. It plays really well on a book cover and stuff like that. But it's a hard thing to put yourself in that situation. And so you go through generationally. And I, you know, I do a show with my 56-year-old father every day. And there's things about technology and the things that are coming up now that he doesn't understand. And and thankfully he's humble enough to ask questions. If it's things he doesn't know, but I've been in plenty of situations again, where if I'm in a situation where I feel like there's a knowledge gap, all of a sudden I start to realize, Oh man, maybe that's kind of where some of this dismissal comes from is, I don't want to feel dumb. Yeah, well, I mean, and and you framed
0: it up perfectly. I was going to say, you know, people inherently crave respect, some level of predictability or control, safety, security, and, and that ties into their emotions, right? Like how much of the conflict that we deal with, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's athletes, coaches, whether it's anything, comes from the role of emotions and just kind of what we feel. Now, I know your father is a huge influence on you. And obviously, you both played sports at a supremely high level. Did doing that help you kind of with that emotional control, like not getting too high, not getting too low, just being able to ride it out? And like, does that help you as a communicator, you think?
1: Uh, Yeah, I I definitely think there is something unique about sports. Like it's this weird crucible and people always say it's a microcosm of life. I really think it puts you at extremes. And I think especially in football, because you're forced so specifically in that sport, to focus or else someone else can get hurt. Like I played offensive line and if I wasn't focused and I didn't go out there and accomplish my job, there was a chance that my buddy, the running back or the quarterback got hurt as a result of that. And so that level of focus, when you know, it's tied to someone else kind of makes you go, all right, you know, I'm in this hostile environment. There's a ton of stuff going on. Let me focus on the few things that I need to focus on to be best one I definitely think there's some transfer there. Now let's talk college football
0: a minute and I obviously, you know, you were at Notre Dame I'm a Husker. You know, we all know how that turned out. We can go into college football history if you want. Uh, But talk to me a little bit about, you know, where you think the college football landscape is. And I know we have some international listeners right now that are going to be like, ah, screw college football. But this is a space, you know, guilty pleasure of mine. Uh, It's something I I still resonate. It's probably the sport that I actually follow most avidly and having worked in there a little bit as well. But talk to me about where you think the college football landscape is going to look like uh, this year and, and some of the things that you think are especially exciting about watching the sport now.
1: Yeah, I think what's exciting is, and you're you're seeing this trickle up to the NFL too, but kids are A, so talented now. Everything is shifted down a level, so the approach that used to be reserved for pro sports eventually bled into college sports, and what eventually bled into college sports bled into high school sports, and so you get a group of kids that come in so physically and mentally prepared that they get on the field fast, and so you see every year this influx of young, exciting talent that I think is at a base level as a fan, super appealing. Now, what that means for what we're doing to kids that next level down, who are all of a sudden kind of being forced to grow up a little sooner and having different stressors put on them than I ever had to deal with, that can certainly be a debate. But as far as what it means for the product of college sports, you do get the Trevor Lawrences of the world that show up onto the scene. Tuatunga Vailoa the year before right now. Panay Sewell, who's a guy who's the left tackle, for Oregon this year that started as a true freshman last year and had such an immediate impact, like to see how far athletes have come, even since, you know, six or seven years ago now that I was in college athletics, it's pretty cool to see in the maturity that comes along with handling everything that happens with that. So I think that, I think the development of the college football playoff has made for an interesting new round of debates, but has certainly made for an exciting product like college football may only have four teams that make the end of the year playoff, but each and every week has this sort of elimination feel to it. It starts, you know, in week one this year, Auburn's going to play Oregon, and Oregon comes from a Pac-12 that has been left out of the party in a lot of different ways in the college football landscape and probably feels like they have to wear the shield of the Pac-12 on their back as they go into this one. And so you get early season compelling matchups like that. You get that do-or-die feel every week that – I think is unique to football, but it definitely has a, a an even more heightened feel in college football.
0: That's a good no. That's a good analysis. I mean, I'm a little bitter you didn't take the bait with my jab at uh, Notre Dame and Nebraska, but whatever. Um,
1: but like I wanted. <laughs> hey, to- listen, I'm high on Scott Frost, and so are a lot of people at the network. I had Dan Orlovsky who's one of our best college and pro analysts say he's Nebraska's his sleeper pick to make the playoffs. So that's a wide open side of the big Ten, No doubt about it. Yeah. I'm a little bitter though,
0: man. You know, one uh, one of their assistant coaches a while ago when they were at UCF together had asked, you know, he's like, Hey, would you send a copy of your book? And uh, I sent one for coach Frost too. And I'm like, Hey coach Frost, I'm a, I'm a Nebraska kid, bored and bred as well. Would love your opinion on this. Thanks for all you do for the state. Never heard back from him. So I doubt he's going to listen to this, but you got to give him some heat for me. If you ever uh, have a chance to break bread with him, just be like, "Hey." this guy's pretty pissed that you haven't, he hasn't heard about his book yet. Um, on a serious note, like with college football, everybody talks about recruiting being, you know, the, the, the biggest uh, thing, right? Like, oh, if you get this, recruit, and we know, like, I mean, you see it as a player, I saw it as a strength coach. So many of these five stars and whatever stars never even pan out, but I almost think more interesting than recruiting now, I think the thing that nobody's really talking about on a general level, I know you guys covered on the networks is the transfer rule, you know, because now it's almost like a free agency that's been, you talked about all the things that go up into the NFL and influence up and down. But talk to me about what you think this transfer rule and explain it to the audience a little bit, if you don't mind for anybody not familiar, because the, the reason I want you to talk about this a little, Mike, is because when I deal with coaches and, and a lot of what I talk about now is buy-in behavior change, the number one thing they say is like, listen, man, we're dealing with athletes now that they come in and we just know we've got to communicate with them differently because they can basically bounce. And so we've really got to find out what drives them. And we've got to spend the majority of our time really like almost kind of um, filtering out ones that have not behavior issues, but like people that just really aren't clear on their focus because we don't know if they're going to abandon the team later on. Can you talk about the complexities of the transfer rule and where you see that going and impacting the sport?
1: Yeah, so like you said, to start, the, the transfer rule as it sits now basically allows for guys to enter something called the transfer portal that's a little bit different now. The undergraduate transfer rules haven't really changed. If you transfer while you're still in your you know initial four years of eligibility – You're usually required to sit a year now. What we've seen a lot more is these hardship waivers that guys can get signed that'll make them eligible to play immediately. Justin Fields, who's going to be the quarterback at Ohio State this year, who was at uh, Georgia the year prior as a true freshman, got one of those and now is going to be eligible to play right away at Ohio State. So you're seeing a lot more of that. The transfer portal that everyone hears about now is one of the big buzzwords. just allows kids to test the water of – all right, who might be interested in me if I'm transferring without having to tell their coaches, which was something I only learned of recently as a caveat to what the transfer portal was. And that part to me is is interesting. And it's a double-edged sword because a lot of the the player in me looks at this and says, yes, this is a positive. There are so many guys that I know that I saw that found themselves in situations where they were sold a false bill of goods and now they're in a spot where, When I was playing, you didn't really have a way out that didn't have you sitting a year and cost you one of the precious few years of college football. That's the big difference between college and pro. You only get four years of playing on the field. You can do it in five years or however many you get if you redshirt, but you've got a limited window. And so for guys that found themselves in bad situations, we used to just fall back on these cliches and say, Well, you got to work your way through it. Well, you got to this or that. Well, you know what? The coach may have also lied. The coach may have gotten fired. The coach may have taken a different job that he wasn't initially, you know, telling me about when I came to this particular school. And so part of me thinks, yeah, it it levels the playing field. But I also want to do the right thing and hear out coaches on the other side who say, yeah, it, it is changing the way that we have to communicate. It's changing the way that we have to build teams and recruit coming in which is difficult, but you're also dealing with a system where most of those guys are are paid and paid handsomely and a system where that's going to be the disparity between players and coaches. Part of me, again, we kind of touched on this before, when you're in the position of leadership and especially the leadership of kids that are between 18 and 22 years old, more of the onus probably should be on you to do a better job of communicating, to go out of your way to make sure, all right, we are communicating everything as fairly and honestly as we can in this situation. Right, and that's one thing that
0: drives me nuts about coaching culture is, you know, what I wanna say when I hear this stuff, and again, complaining is, oh, so what are you saying? Like, you really have to like work harder at understanding kids? Well, rightfully so, you know, coaches, I think people forget that like coaches are not always forthright, but there's this thing where, right, if if we turn on the news and we hear about a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or somebody from some big tech firm or something else, they're involved in some kind of scandal or they're, well, it's, it's kind of business as normal. We expect that we've heard that a lot, but people act surprised when they hear that a kid might not be treated well, or that you said was, was sold a false bill of goods or that a coach didn't do anything. Cause there's almost this like halo effect, right? There's this martyrdom that kind of follows coaching culture and almost kind of protects it. Sure. Like when we hear something like, it's just not that same kind of quotidian. Oh, I expected that to happen. It's almost like coaches get a pass and then, and it's easy to go back and blame the kids again. It's like, how do you call yourself a leader if you don't expect this to be a two-way negotiation? I mean, and not 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 to mention the fact that you're dealing with adolescents. I mean, people from the age of eighteen to twenty-four are really still considered adolescents. And one thing I talk about in a lot of my lectures and in my book is like the brain, the part of the brain that is rational is not even fully formed yet. The prefrontal cortex, like these people. Are literally a different animal at certain periods of their life. And anybody can fact check that prefrontal cortex, usually fully developed around 25, of course, is outliers. But so coaches should have to take ownership and say, hey, I'm not always dealing with rational people. They're easily influenced. Um, they, they may not have listened. They may have gotten caught up in their own hype. Like a lot of that does come back to the coaches.
1: It, it certainly does. And the one thing that I always do empathize with with coaches is you're right. You are not dealing at times with rational players in a lot of this but at the same time I'm always kind of cognizant and this is something I didn't really notice until after when I went back and talked to my coaches is we talk a lot about pay for play because there's so much money in college football right now but that's also created stress on that end too like I, I knew coaches on my staff at Notre Dame who were paying two and three mortgages at a time because they had been fired from other jobs or the staff they had been with had moved or gone somewhere else and so they had to uproot their lives and their families like what you've done and the influx of money in college football is you have asked a bunch of coaches that are well-paid in a lot of instances, but are, are still doing this as the means to feed their family. You've asked them to feed their families on the, the the backs and the whims of like you just said, 18 to 24 year olds that are still developing. And there's part of that from that end. that's kind of a terrifying thought. And with the way that universities turn over college coaches so rapidly now, there's a sense of urgency that I think in a lot of instances has made coaches worse teachers because you're, you're coaching in a lot of instances scared. You're coaching for your job. And so instead of focusing on, all right, here are the things I know we need to, need to do to succeed, it's here's the things I know that are going to get us not beat. And, and those may not sound like they're worlds apart, but when you see it applied on a day-to-day basis, they end up making a huge difference. And so it is, it's a unique stress and it, it's different. And as people rightly point out, it's the better of the two because you're still being paid money for your services in this field in a way that the kids aren't. In a lot of this, but it's a unique stress. What's asked of them, and because you know they got a boss too, and it it creates a weird environment.
0: Right. Well, it's like I think it was Ali that said it. Right. He's like, it's not the mountains that wear you out; it's the pebbles in your shoe. So even though people are getting paid handsomely in some respects, it's not necessarily that. Right. It's it's the constant moving of your family. I mean, my wife and I collectively, like, I've moved 15 times in my life, and that's through uh, just college, grad school, internships, a job promotion. You know, this and that, and. And it's part of it's just being in the strength and conditioning industry. You talked about turnover, you know, that's something where it gets even stickier because oftentimes strength coaches can't directly influence wins and losses. Now they play a role. They're a cog in the machine, right? Like dumb training practices uh, can mitigate a lot of things, but it gets even worse for strength coaches. Talk to me like about just, again, as somebody that's a a, a former player and now somebody that reports it and sees it on a a broader national stage, talk to me about your perception of the role of the strength coach, coach now in this realm? I mean, we hear about coaches saying like it's it's one of the most important hires, yet whenever you turn on the TV, one thing that always inflames our industry, Mike, is co- strength coaches are always kind of like projected as cheerleaders, right? Like, is is do you still think that's the popular sentiment? And if so, what can coaches do, strength coaches, to kind of make themselves be taken a little bit more seriously on the national stage?
1: Yeah, so it, it's interesting, right? Because we see what, again, going back to what we talked about before. What plays well on social media? It's the strength coaches breaking boards over each other's backs before a game or giving some crazy hype speech out on the field that ends up getting shared and ends up doing well. And so people like that. Everyone likes good, positive attention and feedback. What you're talking about on the other side is is absolutely true. Anyone who's been inside of the machine understands that outside of the head coach, the person that sees and gets to affect, especially at a foundational level, when you're talking about guys whose bodies are still developing, you know, the strength training approaching college is so different from professionals because you're dealing with guys that are just growing into man bodies versus guys that are already there. Like the strength coach sees more of the guys during the year than probably anyone else on the staff. And so that influence both physically and from the tone they set emotionally and mentally, and, and what the messaging is it is so invaluable I don't know if it's providing more access to that part. You see teams will put videos up from inside their strength and conditioning room, but I think making more of those teachable moments available, making more of those things that are a part of the winning process. You know, we talked to Bill O'Brien on the show just, uh, just yesterday, the head coach of the Houston Texans, who said, He would love to see the uh, joint practices that NFL teams do during the preseason televised because, as he said, you would see the thought that goes into each period and how it's planned out, each practice, every rep, and how much it matters to both teams. And he thought there's value in that. I, I think you could probably apply that here and say, if you brought people inside more of those teachable moments instead of just you know, the ones that look really flashy and great, maybe then the outside world understands what we all kind of know.
0: Well stated. I mean, essentially what you're saying there, if I heard you correctly, is if they could show and use the term teachable moments, I think of process and context, right? A lot of times we only see highlights, we see snapshots, but we don't see the process and context, and that's where the learning takes place, right?
1: Absolutely. I I, I think that's the, the spot on way to do it is as much of that as you can provide. The more everyone learns. And the one thing that we're kind of seeing is people want to know that stuff, like the amount of information that we're given in the outside world, I think is starting to breed a smarter generation and a smarter group of fans that understands I have all this information and I want more of it. People have been given access and you know that Pandora's box doesn't close and go the other way now. So. I'd imagine there'd be an appetite for
0: that. Is this smarter generation, the one with uh, bionic arms and the nano chip in the brain that you were referring to earlier?
1: Yes, exactly, they're tearing my arms off as they ask me for more informed videos and content for the internet.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, listen, you 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 make an excellent point again, is people, there there's a hunger for that. So here's, here's like a, a hot seat question for you then, and I've been on you about this for a minute. I, I want to know then, like, you know, I always say this and, and at first it was jokingly, some friends and I were sitting around, we were watching ESPN and I said, you know what, man, they have an NFL insider, a this insider, a that specialist, oh, now a former GM is doing this, still no love for the strength coach, right? Like when you hear about the injuries that go on at training camps or you hear about things that go on here or when you when you show like, uh, you know, there's always something about somebody's training regimen or whatever, I want to know what it's going to take to get, I don't even know what you'd call it, where's the EN, ESPN insider strength and conditioning coach segment like how do I apply for this role because I want in
1: yeah no listen and you know what I think that's something and I credit now it's not the exact same field but I think it's similar in the understanding of an area that is so vital that is underserved is uh, physical therapy PTs Stefania Bell who works for us and who is our injury expert at ESPN does a lot of great work as someone who covers a lot of this as someone who is very close with a lot of strength coaches. And so I, I think her really starting to carve out that voice and she has had to battle for it. She has worked extremely hard across a wide variety of sports to try and apply that knowledge and give that information to people that, uh, you know, I, I think as it comes up and as more people like yourself and other voices in this area come to form, it's going to be because people like Stefania who are in it doing it now have really started to, I, I think, create a place. Like we were talking today about Andrew Lux, uh, lower leg injury that he's dealing with right now that yep. started off labeled as a calf strain and has now turned into some sort of ankle or bone, according to Dr. Jim Irsay, which is absolutely tongue firmly planted in <laughs> cheek. But the first person I texted and the first person we called to try and get on the phone was Stefania because she has such a unique understanding of this area. And so I think for things like that, it is really focusing on, all right, you know, where where can this be a useful part of the conversation? And I think that's definitely one area that probably goes underserved.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's awesome that you have the injury expert. I just think that the performance expert, I'm going to continue to lobby for that. I'm going to implore my listeners to just pepper your social media and ESPNs with, you know, just saying like, oh, we want a performance expert on there. Cause here's the thing, like, um, you know, we were talking to, we, th- this, gets brought up a lot. Like you, what most people don't understand is the politics that go on on that level, even in the performance space, oftentimes strength coaches are hamstrung by head sport coaches coaches or even people up or down the chain in terms of what they can do. You know, there's a lot of times where, and, and you see there's just a lot of competitiveness in the field, you know, athletes will come back and, you know, I'll say, Hey, what are you, what are you doing in season? Or I'll have a chat with their strength coach because you try to integrate and work together and they can't do some of the things they want to do, you know, cause they might have a GM or a coach. It's like, Hey, I've won four Super Bowls. This is how we did it. This is how I want you to run it in the weight room. And so now they've, they've completely taken the expertise away from that individual, let alone the autonomy. And then the team will get you know it can get crushed by injuries non-contact injuries and then everybody wants to point the finger at the strength coach and so they're just I mean I mean you look at the Achilles and calf and hamstring I mean a lot of this comes down to the length of the CBA I mean these guys don't get a long off season and then they have to go back and forth between their team strength and coach conditioning coach or people in the off season like myself and you know they might be running on different surfaces an athlete the other day I'm like hey man you're you're I heard your hamstring kind of uh was acting up on you and He's like, yeah, you know, and I said, well, in the off season, like, where were you, where were you doing sprint work? What kind of surface were you running on? And I just don't think a lot of people understand the nuances of this. It's not as simple as like, oh, somebody did too many of this exercise and whoops, that happened. It's all so complex. It's something you know, but I just feel like it's harder for the greater audience to understand. Does that make sense?
1: No, definitely. And I I think that's, that's kind of the constant challenge for all of us is to take a complex subject like that and to take complex points. And turn them into bites because unfortunately, and, you know, podcasting is one arena where we can have this longer form conversation, but when we get onto radio, it's gotta be, all right, what's the bite that unfortunately, and the the basis for all of ours is even as we have a bigger appetite for knowledge, when you get back to a place like radio, it's still this economy of time where so many people are flipping through so quickly that we've got to constantly fight that battle of finding a way to make sure it is couched in a way and wrapped in a way and, and made palatable enough to where someone's going to remain interested long enough to keep the dial tuned that way. Like it's a very weird feedback system for sure. But like we said, the knowledge appetite is certainly there. So finding spots where it's relevant to put in there, I, I think is probably one of the next steps, right? In The way we cover. all. This.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful point. And that was actually my rebuttal when some people would say, Hey, why don't we have coaches or people like this explaining it? And I said, because listen, a lot of times coaches like to hear themselves talk and they have this curse of knowledge where, you know, they get so mad if they hear a soundbite. Like I think a dietician was on the news the other day explaining how, you know, gut health and and she went into this really simple uh, discussion. Boom. Once again. In on Twitter, people are like, I can't believe she dumbed it down like this. And what I want to say is, you're not her audience, guys. Like, the people at home who have no background knowledge in this and are not subject matter experts are the ones that they're trying to get to understand this. Like, quit getting offended because they didn't use the scientific nomenclature that you think is consistent. They have three seconds to get it out. They're trying to talk to the average person. And, like, like how do you think we bridge that gap? Like, I mean, do you think that's just, uh, it's almost like, uh, like uh, it's um, buyer beware equivalent. Like you just have to know, like, and you mentioned it a couple of times, you sign a contract when you decide to watch uh, uh, TV or you, you decide to turn into a radio show that like, don't expect so damn much out of everything because there's like, it's just impossible to cover it all given the temporal context.
1: Yeah, I, I think that really is just, it is on the side of the people that are producing that content. I think at some point, It is just having that ability of something we talked about before, which is to just just sort of tune out the noise when you know, all right, this person just clearly doesn't understand the constraints of this given medium, but if I'm speaking to them in another medium, if I'm speaking to them on a podcast or I have the chance to respond online, I can show a level of understanding that kind of takes those fears and takes those doubts and puts them away because all we can do is work with, you know, to the best of our ability within the constraints of whatever platform we're on at the time, you know, you, you deal with the audience that's right in front of you. You know, you're not giving the same talk in front of an audience of people as you would inside the book verbatim. You know, you've got a lot more time to work with inside the pages of the book than you do when you're speaking in front of a crowd of people. And so we just work for the audience and is in front of us the time being and try our best to understand, but tune out, you know, For self-preservation, the audience that's chiming in from around.
0: Yeah, there's an element. There's definitely elements of like ego, laziness, and impatience. I mean, I I think again, you you know this at such a higher level than I do. But my one of my biggest frustrations in the past year is, I'll have somebody on Instagram that wants me to explain something super complex, and I'll be like, "Hey, brother, like I'd love to give you a." 300 page DM here, but that's why I talk about on the book or, or have you checked out the podcast? And and I find sometimes no matter what medium Mike, I try to meet people on the podcast or YouTube or social media or a book, everybody just wants it explained their way, how they want it right now. And there's also just this element of knowing that you're never going to please anybody, everybody. And that's part of being a strong communicator too, right? Like doing your best to be considerate, but also not getting so wrapped up in like every which way you could shape a message because speaking to everybody is speaking to nobody.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and you kind of hit on the word at at some point here, but this idea of ego, like we all have it. And if we're not careful, it can get kind of bruised easily as you're going through all these different phases. It's having the self-confidence to say, all right, I understand what I've put into this process. I understand the information and the work that I've put into mastering whatever my craft is. I'm not ignorant enough to say that I know it all, but I'm self-confident enough to go into these arenas, understand there are always going to be people that disagree. And when people do it civilly, that's great. There's room for growth. And when people choose to be ugly about it, then at some point, like we said earlier, you have to pick and choose those battles and decide, all right, this person feels pretty dug in. This is one drop in a very large bucket. Why am I going to waste my time on that when I understand and, believe wholeheartedly in the things that I'm saying.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's a perfect way to wrap a bow on it. Mike, when we think about career progression, and I've really enjoyed watching you continue to progress and and everything that you've continued to do, and I know it's only the start for you. Like, what's next for you? I mean, now you you have your hands in a little bit of everything on ESPN. I mean, obviously, that was a hard enough transition going from athlete to this, I'm sure, but what's the next step? And uh, what have you learned about just transitioning and continual career growth during this process?
1: I think it's the one thing I've learned. It's funny because as many different kinds of people as you're exposed to in the world of athletics, you still are all kind of in to an extent cut from the same cloth. And so now getting into this new field, I meet people who come from backgrounds outside of sports. I meet people from so many different vantage points and you very quickly realize that if you're doing things the right way, the growth really never stops. And so I'm fortunate and really extremely grateful to be doing as many different things as I am and for me it's part of a process of whittling it down and saying all right what are the things I love doing the most and then how can I take the things that I enjoy doing the most and make them better and spin them forward not just do what works well and now my, my favorite people are the ones that constantly look for places to innovate for places to where they can put their own unique stamp on whatever's going on and those tend to be the people that You know, whether they get the praise now or in the future, change so much and do so much for other people. And so uh, those are the people I've sought out. and, And that's certainly what I'd like to keep doing is, you know, find the things amongst all the things I'm fortunate to do right now that I'm really the most passionate about and then figure out, all right, how can I help further that? Well, you used the word
0: fortunate a couple times there, Mike. And I know for a fact, I feel extremely fortunate. I'm sure our listeners do too, that you spent so much time with us today, man. We covered a lot of topics. Um, this was more than I could ask for. I really appreciate you taking your time. I know to, to go from such a massive stage of ESPN uh, to my measly podcast, man, that not only shows commitment and character, but that just shows true class. Uh, if people want to continue to follow you, if they want to support the shows, and everything you're doing, all that, like what's the best route? How can they get in touch uh any anything you can share there
1: yeah absolutely i mean uh, for me personally uh at m jr 57 on twitter and instagram is, is the the social feeds you can find me on more often than not uh, uh golic and wingo you mentioned the radio show i'm a part of at 6 to 10 a.m eastern every monday through friday on espn radio espn 2 espn news all that good stuff and then uh you know I'll hopefully be popping up on on any number of your screens in the fall i do Uh, rankings reaction show for college football on Twitter on Tuesdays once the college football playoff rankings start. So if you've got a screen, chances are I'm going to try and weasel my way on it. But uh, it's a blast. And so if anyone feel so inclined to come check it out i hope you have a good time
0: yeah anybody that didn't think what he said could have been taken in a really inappropriate context he's going to weasel his way on your screen that could be get really scary really quickly uh yeah buddy buddy. no i appreciate you once again mike and everybody make sure that you support him and as always thanks for listening to the show wait 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 before you go Glad I caught you. Listen, there's a lot of people that think that I just have social media, podcasts, and and YouTube. Guys, there are so many more resources uh, if this stuff interests you. Um, first of all, if you haven't checked out the book, I'd be honored if you would. It's on Amazon worldwide. It's called Conscious Coaching. Uh, we have a free field guide. There's so many resources I try to provide online: free ebooks, free downloads. If you just go to artofcoaching.com, check out the free resources. There's also online courses. So whether you're interested in the coaching, communication, psychology side, we have an online course called Bought In. That is a great resource. It's research backed and it applies to every profession. You do not have to be a strength and conditioning coach. Literally, I use the term strength coach and athlete because that's what I do. But just like you read uh, an, an article or a book by a former Navy SEAL or somebody that owns a company in Silicon Valley, all these things are relatable to other fields. Also, if you're looking more into career management, whether that's you trying to learn more about marketing, contract negotiation, networking, Resume writing, all these things that go into the messiness of trying to create and cultivate a sustainable career, we have a course for that as well. It's called Valued. Both of those are found on ArtOfCoaching.com. Remember the podcast and all these other things. You know, there I can only share so much, and we try to do it in so many other mediums. So please, I'd be honored at your support. We try to make sure and donate a percentage of the proceeds every year to either fight Alzheimer's, uh, cancer research. We uh, we donate to local police forces. We try try to do a lot of different things and we can only do that with your support. Thanks again for listening to the podcast and I hope you enjoy those resources.